Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 24. So imagine this. Imagine being an astronaut, which many of you have, and looking out the window of your space shuttle to see Earth from space for the first time. So some don't need to imagine that. Uh, some have had that very experience. So a July uh, 2019 article on Business Insider is entitled, Something Profound Happens When Astronauts See Earth from Space for the First Time. Uh, the article goes in part, On July 16, 1969, the day of the launch, the Apollo 11 crew became some of the first people to look down at Earth from space. Buzz Aldrin called it a, quote, brilliant jewel in the black velvet sky. This state of mental clarity, says the article, is called the over effect, overview effect. It occurs when you are flung so far away from Earth that you become totally overwhelmed and awed by the fragility and unity of life on our blue globe. It's the uncanny sense of understanding the big picture. So most of us won't make it to outer space anytime soon unless Elon Musk uh, comes through on his promises and makes uh, space travel entertainment more attainable and you have the buku bucks to be able to afford that. But here in Psalm 24, at least in the first two verses, we get a big picture perspective. We see, as it were, earth hanging in the void. Who sustains the earth? We are introduced in Psalm 24 to the creator and owner of this planet we call our home. So these verses really reorient the way we see both ourselves and everything around us. So as I said at the beginning uh, of our time together, our plan this summer is to just dig deep into certain psalms. We just spent three weeks in Psalm 23. Uh, we hope, Lord willing, to spend three weeks here in Psalm 24. Uh, and we'll see as this psalm progresses the way that we as sinners can actually have relationship with this owner of the universe, this holy God. But first, before we get there, here in verses 1 and 2, David the psalmist allows us time to meditate on what it means that God is the creator and the king of this world. So I'm going to read for us Psalm 24, uh, just the first two verses. You can follow along. A Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So our two points this morning are going to be what I just said. We, we learn about God in this passage, that he is creator, first point, and that he is king, second point. So first, God is creator. And to see that, we're actually going to pass over and skip verse 1 real quick and go straight to verse 2. So David there says, For he, that is the Lord, Yahweh, has founded it, the earth, upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So David is proclaiming this truth that God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. So the first chapter of Genesis shows us that God created the world ex nihilo, right? That's Latin for out of nothing. 
So when you and I make something, we always need sort of supplies. We need materials. We need equipment in order to construct something well. So right now I have a playset and about 10 boxes in my garage at home that I have shifted from one part of the garage to the other. And my goal at some point before school starts is to construct this playset in the backyard. Uh, it says that it takes about 40 man hours, so it'll be about 120 Jacob hours. So you can pray for me for me in that. And, and I will, Lord willing, create that playset at some point. But I need the parts in those boxes. I need the instruction manual as much as I hate to read it uh, for to to assemble this this fun gift that the kids have been looking forward to and will continue to look forward to. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need parts. He doesn't need supplies. He doesn't need, need tools. He doesn't need resources or materials. He is the self-existent one, and nothing exists outside of his sustaining power. David says here, God has founded the earth upon the seas. So what's probably in view here is Genesis 1.9. Uh, there we read, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. It's also interesting to know that at this time, uh, in as David's writing in Psalm 24, other uh, other certain nations outside Israel saw waters and saw seas as chaotic forces. But here David says the God of Israel is not bothered by the chaos. In fact, he owns everything, even the things that might seem chaotic to us, his creation. Uh, reminded here also that da uh, God doesn't just create the world. God, God hasn't just created the world. He is also con continually sustaining it. So why are we still alive? Uh, why does life on this fragile planet continue? Because God sustains it all. So pardon another personal illustration. I don't do these often, but recently I had a dream for real. It's one of those dreams that you wake up and you're like, huh, that might have a meaning. But nah, right? But it's those, it's those dreams that you remember. And it makes no scientific sense at all, I don't think. So those of you with scientific background, you can say, actually, I can interpret that for you. But don't feel like you have to. But I'm going to share it. So I had a dream that the moon had somehow been dislodged from its right position. And so all throughout the world, certain things sort of... <laughs> hovered over the surface of the ground like gravity had somehow broken a little bit. I'm not sure how that works, but everything was sort of, you know, life wasn't destroyed, but things hovered because the moon was a little bit off kilter. It had budged a little bit. And I assume there's no rhyme or reason to that. If there is, then cool, I can write a book. But in light of studying this psalm, I was reminded how that crazy dream actually points me to truth. God has set everything in right position. He has established his, his earth just right, down to the millimeter, down to the molecule. And nothing can adjust that good design unless he grants permission. So, so why is this idea of God as creator, God as sustainer, why is this idea so ignorant and insane to our world today? 
So October 2016 in the BBC, there was an article called The Secret of How Life on Earth Began. And, and we begin the article by reading, how did life begin? There can hardly be a bigger question. Yes, BBC. For much of human history, almost everyone believed some version of, quote, the gods did it. Any other explanation was inconceivable. That is no longer true. And then they go on to show why and how science has advanced to show how ignorant that view is. But we can, we can laugh, um, we can scoff. I don't think that's the right response to a view like that. I think these people are smart people. So why is it? Why is it that we seem so ignorant in thinking that a superior being has created everything around us? We could d debate the aspects of creation and evolution Many men and women who are much smarter than I have done that, and their resources are free online if you have a hankering towards that. That's not my purpose this morning. Instead, I think this should remind us of the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, where the Apostle Paul speaks of God as creator king, right? The God we see in Psalm 24. So in the beginning of Romans, the first three chapters, Paul introduces us to a problem called sin, so in chapter 1, verse 19, Paul says, What can be known about God is plain, because God has shown it. How has he shown it? In verse 20, he says, For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So Paul is saying God has clearly shown himself and his na nature, who he is, in his creation. So what's the problem then? In verse 21, Paul says that though we have knowledge of God through his creation, we do not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Paul goes on to say we have become fools, almost like we flipped creation on its head. So I, I like to think of it as like when you're on the, the playground and you're on the swing set and you, you hold onto the chains and you lean all the way back so that you see the world turned upside down, right, until your head gets dizzy. The whole world looks flipped. Spiritually speaking, that's what we've done in our sin. We've flipped God's design on its head. We've taken God, the creator, Paul says, and exchanged him for the created, like Jason just referenced a little in his prayer. We've decided we will worship his gifts, not him, the giver. We've decided we will even worship ourselves rather than him. In Romans 1, verse 25, Paul says, We have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So the Bible tells us each one of us has seen evidence of God in creation. But some of us have chosen to suppress that knowledge in sin and honor God's creation more than God himself. See, sin at its heart confuses the creation order we see in Psalm 24, 1 and 2. And so, according to God's word, denying God as creator, denying that this world, all we can see and hear and touch this morning, is his creation, isn't fundamentally an issue of science, but of worship. See, if God is creator, we must worship him. If God is creator... All we see, everything around us, is not only from him, but for him. And so that means we live for him. That doesn't sit well 
for prideful Christians or prideful people. But on the other hand, if this earth has come to us by chance and rules of evolution, then there is no ultimate authority. We become the creators of our own meaning, our own destiny. And that means we can live for ourselves. We can decide how to live, what to pursue, what is true. I almost think of it as rewriting Psalm 24 as sort of a personal manifesto of self-worship. Perhaps that would read something like this. The earth is mine and all its resources, the world and all it can give me. For I have founded my own meaning. I have established my own destiny. Church, God is creator. We are his creatures. And this creation design we see in Psalm 24, 1 and 2 shouldn't just show us the scope of the universe, but should show us, as one author puts it, the shape of our sin. Sin distorts God's creation, turning the creation order upside down, exchanging, as Paul says, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God is creator. But the psalmist isn't done. Verse 2 is the basis for what he says in verse 1. Since God is creator, the founder and establisher of, of the earth, then David can say what he says in verse 1, and that is God is king, God is master, God is ruler. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So since God is creator, God rules. He has created every living thing, the earth. He has created us, those who dwell therein. He owns everything. He owns us. He owns you. Our lives, our meaning, our existence is not for us. It's from the Lord and for the Lord. So God as our creator and owner gets to design us and choose our design and decide what we run on, the fuel that empowers us to find meaning in our lives. And that fuel we read in scripture is his glory. We've been made to be glory reflectors as the image of God on this earth. God is who we've been made for. So if you look around this morning, uh, the Lord has sent the breeze that had previously gone away. Praise him for that kindness. But look at everything. Look at the, the grass and the trees and the sky and, and all these things that, that we really have no sort of control over starting. This belongs to God. And so that means we should care about the environment. We should care about the climate, whether you think it's changing or not. I'm not talking about that. We should care about pollution, not because we're politically left, but because we're Christians. And we steward what God owns for his glory. This means we should care about the infant in utero and oppose abortion that we should care about the elderly and oppose euthanasia, that we should care about the disabled and promote life, not because we're politically right, but because we're Christians. And we steward what God owns for his glory. When we look at the people and things around us, we see everything made for God's glory. Now, this realization, I think, should make us humble and grateful. 
the opposite of what sin does in Romans 1, right? In Romans 1, the sinner exalts himself and is ungrateful towards the Creator. But it must not be so for us. We must be humble because God owns us. We must rightly fear and stand in awe of this Creator King. This fear will make us wise, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom does not start in the academy. Wisdom does not start on social media, right? Wisdom starts with the awe-filled, reverential fear of the Creator King. Those outside of Christ most fear His judgment. But for those of us in Christ, fear of judgment has been removed, but not fear of the Lord. We still must stand in reverential awe of Him, living in light of the fact that He owns us. We must rightly fear, and yet we must also be overwhelmed with gratitude. Because God owns everything, and yet, amazingly, he has set his love on us. I love how David says it in Psalm 8. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, he has this big picture view. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It's amazing that God, who is the owner and creator of the big picture of the universe, cares for you and you. The most example, amazing example of his care is the gospel, right? In the gospel, God the creator came down to the creature. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to an upside-down world. We had royally messed things up exchanging God and his glory for the fading glory of his creatures, elevating and worshiping the gift rather than the giver. And yet when Jesus came, he came to save us by doing something no religious person could have imagined him doing, God doing. I mean, what could be more upside down than God coming to die for his creatures, for those made in his image? And yet at the cross, God the Son took on himself the sin of any who would repent of their rebellion against the Creator, repent of their corruption of his good creation, repent of their idolatry of the creature rather than the Creator. He came, God coming down, the one, as we'll sing soon, whose hands created everything and hold everything together, came to have his hands nailed to a cross of wood. Indeed, the cross is sort of an upside-down salvation for an upside-down world. Jesus came to take that sin and that judgment on himself on the cross. He died, friend, for your upside-down worship. How you put God's gifts higher than God. So if you haven't turned to him, do so today while there's still time. Trust in him, and he will take your sin on himself. God saves sinners for his own glory. And what's really cool is that in saving us, he remakes us to be doing what exactly we were supposed to be doing in the, in the first place, bringing him glory. See, the gospel turns creation right side up again, focusing our hearts once again on the glory of the Lord. What wonderful news. If you have questions about what it means to trust in the Creator King who took on flesh in Christ, 
to bear our sins on himself. You can talk to me afterwards. You can talk to someone uh, you know here. And we'd love to share more about what it means that Jesus has died to bring you close to God. And Loudoun Valley Baptist Church family, brothers and sisters, see here at the start of Psalm 24 the great sovereignty of the sovereign king, your creator king. Be humbled by that truth. Be humbled by the fact that he owns you and he has sent his son to redeem you. Two truths that seem kind of far to us because when we think of an owner or a master, we think of somebody far above who doesn't, doesn't work with the peons like us. Not so with the Lord. Christian, ultimately, there is no place you can go in your life or in this world where God isn't on his throne and owns everything you see. That's good news. Abraham Kuyper once famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not say, mine. Christian, everything you have is God's. Your money is God's. Your career is God's. Your bedroom is God's. Your browser history is God's. Your hours on the clock at work are God's. This realization must give us right appropriate fear of the Lord while also comforting us and breathing meaning into everything we do. As Gracie read for us earlier in Colossians 1, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. He owns it all. So consider your life, Christian. God owns your home, your worship, your futures, your very life. So that means that everything you do can be for his glory. That job that irritates you can be for his glory. doesn't mean God's not calling you somewhere else, but he has you right now in your place for his glory. So allow this psalm to humble you and infuse you with greater meaning in everything you do in your life. Changing diapers, mowing the lawn, researching COVID-19 so you can plan your family vacation, whatever it is. The gospel infuses that with meaning as you contemplate the creator king who owns everything. See, I think even as redeemed Christians, we can fall into this trap of thinking life is ultimately about us. So months ago, before uh, this lockdown started, I sent everybody a, a couple books. Um, and one of those was a very comforting title called Remember Death, right, as we face a pandemic. Um, but I sent it to you because I love you. Uh, and uh, the author, Matt McCullough, um, describes in that book each of us in our sin. And he describes it in the way of a story. So he says, in our sin, we think God is not the center of all things, the one from whom and through whom and to whom all things exist. God is a secondary character defined by how he comes into my story. So if I need saving, of course God will save me because who is God? Well, God is the one who loves and protects me. That's his role to play. That's how he fits into the story that centers on me. But then McCullough continues and details the, the reorientation that takes place when we encounter death. And, and death really is kind of this wake-up call as to who owns the world and what it's all about. And he writes then, at that point, 
I begin to see that I'm not the center of the universe after all. I'm a usurper who deserves to be put in his place. I begin to see that God is the only lead in this story, that I'm a character in a story that's about him. Only when I see his glory and recognize that I am utterly dispensable am I prepared to be amazed by the message of the gospel. The gospel is amazing, church, because the gospel both, both shows us we're dispensable and literally nothing in our sin, at the same time showing us our immense value, that God would send his son to die for us. Christian, the God who holds the oceans in his hands has sent his son to feel nails upon his hands. How great is the mercy of this God. We'll sing about that soon, but let's pray. Lord, digging into your word, even if it's just a few verses, is just uh, reorienting and life-changing. And we confess how often we think that we are the creators of our own meaning. We confess we often forget to live in light of the big picture, like those astronauts who were reminded of in space. So humble us and give us hearts of gratitude as we sing now and behold our God, the creator king and the humble savior. Amen.